the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. So when Jesus speaks in these extreme measures, he's saying, take seriously the need to deal with sin in your own heart and life. Because we have to be mindful of the fact that left unchecked, it'll destroy us. So we take this seriously. These are strong words, but we are to take things seriously. But in this context here, not literally maiming the body does not make us less likely to sin. Maybe you've heard the portion of Scripture that starts listing off body parts and says to cut them off if that body part causes you to sin. Pretty crazy, right? Well, today, Pastor Gary will share some insights on this strange passage of the Bible To start off, the Bible is not saying to maim or destroy the body. The Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God and that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. However, the passage is trying to convey the depth of sin. With similar gravity, we must fight sin. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The religious leaders, they got indignant. And verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? I love this scene because it is a reminder to us not to get so stuffy in our worship, that we have to take a lesson from little kids. These little kids are running around the temple going, Hosanna to the King of David, Hosanna to the Son of David. I mean, they're just worshiping him and they're praising him and they don't care who hears them, what they look like or how they sound. And I love this about kids. You know, years ago when our church was smaller and we were able to do things like this, around Christmas time and Easter, we would have the little kids from the Sunday school come and stand up here on the steps and they'd sing around Easter, Easter songs, around Christmas, they'd sing Christmas songs, like one or two songs. And everybody just loved it. And it's always so beautiful because like at Christmas time, there's always this one kid on the top step going at the top of his lungs, away in a manger. And he doesn't even care how he sounds. And it can be completely off tune and he's yelling and screaming and everybody's wonderfully smiling at him because they just know this kid is just all into this song. And it's just this self-abandoned, I'm just going to praise God and I don't really care. Now that same kid, you get him in high school and now it's going to be like, oh, wait a minute. 
danger. A crib for a bed. You know, because why? We get self-conscious all of a sudden. I remember Terry and I miss Lindsay now. We dropped her off at college on Thursday. So it's been a time of grief and mourning and gnashing of teeth around our house. But I remember you know, after the, Lindsay was about four years old. And, we had, and that was a time when Space Jam, the movie Space Jam, came out with Michael Jordan. And, and she would love to go around the house singing, I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. And she'd always put the whoop in between every single line. And we got her up, but we'd say, Lindsay, get up on the hearth. Get up on the hearth of the fireplace and sing that, your, your heart out. And she'd just get up there and she'd go, I believe I can fly. Woo! I believe I can touch the sky. Woo! And she'd sing her heart out. I think about it every night and day. Woo! All right, I know you want to see me go on, but I won't. But my point is, she would sing her little heart out as a four-year-old. Now, today, 18, honey, why don't you get up on the hearth of the fireplace and sing, sing that song? Uh, I don't think so. So, uh, you know why? Because when we get older, we get a little bit, and so here's what happens. We come to church, and as little kids, we're singing our hearts out. Then it's time to worship. We're like, ah, I don't know. Can I lift my hands? Is it safe? Just kind of the palms. That's all I'm going to give right now, the palms. And, and, and we get a little sophisticated, and we get a little self-conscious. And Jesus is saying, take a lesson from little kids. They have uninhibited praise. And God has ordained praise from the mouth of infants and babes. So, back here in Matthew 18, he keeps talking about little children here. He's going to keep using them as examples. Verse 5, let's keep reading. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Listen to Jesus. He's like, you lead one little kid away? You lead him astray? It's better you just have a millstone hung around your neck and you thrown into the depths of the sea. This sounds a little bit more like the Godfather instead of Father God. You know what I'm saying? But the truth is, it's because God loves children and he cares about their eternal significance. And so he he warns us, don't don't do anything to lead little children astray. First time I went to Israel in Capernaum, there is an ancient artifact from the time of Jesus of an ancient millstone. And, you know, I I don't know what concept I had about a millstone, but it was much larger than I thought. It's about four feet in diameter. And it would take a couple of donkeys, and they'd, they'd run a pole between the, the millstone. It would have a hole in the middle of it, and it would, be within, it would be contained within a larger basin. And then the poles would be attached to donkeys, and the donkeys would just kind of walk around, and they would have to move, and then, the tr- and then the millstone would just continue to circulate around the basin. It would crush whatever grain or, gra- or uh, olives that you had in there and, and do its work. But it was huge. It was a couple hundred pounds. So Jesus is saying here, look, there's eternal consequence for those who would hinder uh, the, uh, the eternal uh, life of a young child and cause a little one uh, to sin. And so he's very protective here, and he's very loving of children, as should we, and he's very concerned about their eternal well-being. And he says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, by the way, this is very similar to what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He had a very similar statement. He says in Matthew 6, 29, that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And that statement follows the verse about lust. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, in that context, and so we need to understand context always in Scripture, when we talked about this back in Matthew 6, we talked about that Jesus is not saying do this literally. He's saying do, take this seriously. Now, how do we know that he's not saying do it literally? Well, in the first place... It, it would have been impossible for these guys to hand out Bibles tonight. Anyway, that was a cheap shot. But that would, that would relate for all of us. Because the issue is, look, if Jesus said, if he meant it literally, and I, and I know a pastor who, who somebody in his congregation took this literally and cut off his hand with a hacksaw. And it's just like... Look, so before anyone rushes out and thinks, is Jesus, is this what I'm supposed to do? And you come in blind next week, please understand that in context, what Jesus means here is you have to take dealing with sin seriously because if you were to cut off both hands and gouge out both eyes, does that mean you'll never sin again? If mutilating the body would stop the sin issue then we should mutilate the body. But we all know that mutilating the body doesn't stop the sin issue. Why? Because the sin issue is a matter of the heart. So when Jesus speaks in these extreme measures, he's saying take seriously the need to deal with sin in your own heart and life. Because we have to be mindful of the fact that left unchecked, it'll destroy us. So we take this seriously. These are strong words, but we are to take things seriously. But in this context here, not literally. Maiming the body does not make us less likely to sin. It's a heart issue. We need to get our hearts right with God. Verse 10, he says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, still talking about children, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And this is where we get, honestly, the concept of uh, people having guardian angels. And the Bible does say in Hebrews 1, verse 14, it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Uh, Sometimes I think in our uh, culture, even, even in, I'm talking Christian circles, we become way too preoccupied with demonic things and Satan and, you know, demonology. And in fact, that's the reason why Billy Graham many years ago wrote the book Angels. Uh, and if you've never read it, you ought to pick it up. It's a, it's a great, it's a classic. And, uh, but he said, you know, I I've felt that too many people in the body of Christ were giving too much time and attention to demons instead of the wonderful work of angels. Not that we should ever glorify angels or worship angels. 
uh, but that we should at least be aware of their ministry and that they exist and that they're real. And the Bible says here, Jesus talks about how their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven, meaning that it seems that there are certain angels who are assigned to people. And uh, so whether we want to call them guardian angels or not, that's, that's immaterial. But the fact is that angels do seem to be, as the Bible says, they're dispatched to minister to us. And uh, probably there are ways, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but there are ways that angels have protected you and looked out for you and helped you in ways you may never have known uh, until perhaps you get to heaven, and then you might find out all the different ways that you were taken care of. Well, verse 12 says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that, he did, that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So again, you, you see the, the, the great tender emphasis that Jesus places here uh, on, on children, but on people in general. And he, and he speaks here about the nature of God who is always in pursuit of us because of his love for us. And he uses this analogy. He says, look, if there's a shepherd and he has 100 sheep and 99 are staying within the area and grazing fine, but one wanders off, you'll leave the 99 and you'll go after that one because you don't want that one to fall into a pit or get, get uh, eaten by wolves. And, and so you want to protect it and love it and bring it back. And he, and he says, any good shepherd will leave the 99 and go after that one lost sheep. And God says, and this is the nature of your father in heaven, that he's always going to be pursuing the stray, the wanderer. And we should have a heart for them as well. Because if you find yourself among the 99 that are content to just kind of feed on the word of the Lord and you're, and, and you're pretty solid in your faith, but yet you're seeing your friends who at one point were part of the fold, and I don't mean cornerstone chapel fold, I mean the fold of the body of Christ, and, and, but they're wandering off and they're straying and they're getting into trouble and they're doing things out of a heart of love, not to be judgmental, point a finger, be abrasive, but out of a heart of love, we, have to, we should go after them. And we should just let them know, hey, we, we love you, I love you, and I, you know, I, I see you doing some things, I just want you to know I'm here for you and I'm praying for you, and I don't know if you're interested, but, but obviously a sheep in this case may not have necessarily a will because a good shepherd's going to pick that sheep up, throw that sheep around his neck, break his legs often so that the sheep can always then grow tender towards the shepherd as the leg heals. That's when you see these pictures of shepherds walking around with sheep around their neck. That's what they would do. They would Not only the ones that were too little, but if a, if a sheep would stray and it wasn't too huge, they would often break the leg of the sheep, put it around its neck, and then the sheep would bond with the shepherd in the process of having the leg heal. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of our shepherd, the chief shepherd who was Jesus, and when we stray, what we really need is to draw close to him and have that bond with him. But in this picture, Jesus is painting for us the idea that we should go after the strays as God goes after the strays, that we should have a heart for those who have wandered and do what we can to bring them back to the fold. In the same way, he says, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now, from verse 15 down through verse 20, we come to this section that is entitled in my Bible, a brother who sins against you. And it obviously is a generic term. It can be a sister who sins against you. And this is a passage that is often used to resolve conflict. 
And it's a, it's a wonderful passage. In my opinion, it has been probably misappropriated from time to time. I'm going to do my best to, uh, I'm going to read through all of it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to see how it is a wonderful kind of a four-step plan uh, for, uh, or at least a three-step plan, the fourth step is kind of the last resort, uh, of trying to resolve conflict when you're at odds with someone. And it's, it's specific. It's not just anyone. But let's take a look here, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. All right, now let's break this down. This is is a a wonderful approach to trying to resolve conflict. And if you've never experienced conflict with someone else in your life, you don't have a pulse. All right? Because every single breathing person will have conflict with someone else. That is just the nature of how people are. You could probably get along fine with everybody if you lived on a deserted island. But because none of us does, that means we have to learn how do we properly resolve conflict. Now, in order to understand this, there are some preconditions. Jesus, in in this outline here, he tells us there are some preconditions to conflict resolution. The first is he's speaking of conflict resolution between believers. Note this. He starts by saying, if your brother, okay, again, generic, if your sister, if, if, a, if a fellow believer, that's what he's saying here. Not everybody in the context is a brother. So he's being specific here. If you have a conflict with someone who is a fellow Christian, this does not work. For If you're at odds with somebody at, at your office and they're not a Christian, you can't apply Matthew 18. Maybe some of it in principle you can. But you get to a certain stage here, and you're not going to be able to take your coworker before the leaders of the church because your coworker could care less about what church you go to and the leaders of the church. This is not a generic conflict resolution for just anybody and everybody. This is a conflict resolution plan for Christians. When a brother is at odds with a brother or a sister or vice versa or two sisters, but this is in the context of the church. This is among Christians. The second precondition to this plan needs to be that this is a conflict resolution as it pertains to a sin issue. This is very important. Again, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, this is not if your brother or sister hurts your feelings. Okay? I was offended. This person didn't look at me when I said hi to them. I want the church to get involved. No. I'm sorry, that's offensive, but that's not a sin issue. Somebody doesn't want to be my friend. I want the church to get involved. No, that's not a sin issue. They just don't like you, okay? So 
But, but as, as he speaks here, please note this. This is sin issues. Everybody's going to get offended at some point. Offenses happen. It's not like I'm trying to give a license for us just to offend each other. But just in reality, human nature will offend, and oftentimes unintentionally. There will be unintentional offenses that will happen. By the way, a great verse to remind us of how to deal with those offenses that might come our way is Proverbs 19.11, which says it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. We have to be careful that we don't make everything out of something. There are some things we just need to give to God and pray, and He'll take care of it, and He'll deal with our hearts, and He'll deal with the other person. We don't have to always point it out. You know, if you have the ministry of pointing out offenses, lose it quickly because too many people just feel like I, my mission is to point out how you offended me and you offended me and you offended me. And, and they, they, it, it just seems like they're on this mission to be the Holy Spirit police in the lives of other people. Offenses happen. It is sad. It isn't always right. It is often unintentional. But the Bible says that it is the glory of a man or a woman to overlook an offense, Proverbs 19.11. Take it to the Lord. Let Him help you with it. Then there might be a time after that that you need to go and talk to someone, even if it's not a sin issue. But in this particular example, Jesus is talking about resolving conflict as it relates to sin issues. Number three, you must have two to three witnesses in in order to do this the way Jesus says to do it. Some people read this and they say, if you... You deal with a a sin issue or an offense. Some people would think it's an offense. It's not. Sin issue. You deal with a sin issue with somebody against you, and they don't listen to you. You get two or three of your friends, and you take them with you. Jesus did not say, you know, gather up a posse, all right, and take clubs, and you just gang up on somebody that has wronged you. No, it has to be two or three witnesses of the sin issue that you're confronting. It is, it is pointless to bring two or three people with you to confront someone in love who has sinned against you if they haven't seen it and they have no clue. And I see this happening. You know, people misapply Matthew 18. They're like, I'm just going to get two or three of my friends, and they're just going to go, as, like what, to support you, to, to like be there by your side with arms crossed, like they're your bodyguards? What? what? What good are they actually going to be if they didn't see it? It's hearsay. Now, They may not necessarily have been an eyewitness to your specific event, but they may have experienced exactly what you've experienced themselves. So let's say somebody stole money from you, and you don't have two or three witnesses who witnessed the person stealing money from you, but you have two or three witnesses who themselves were robbed by the same person. There has to be at least an eyewitness to the same sin issue if not at least, that incident that you're confronting. This can't just be random people. You pull off the street, you're friends, and it's just a matter of, I'm going to gang up on you because I'm bringing two or three of my friends. That's not what he's saying here. If they're not an eyewitness, you can't even apply this. And then number four, the goal is to win your brother or sister, not to win the argument. That's the goal. Jesus said here, He says, if he listens to you, in verse 15, you have won your brother over. The idea is, I want to reestablish what might be a broken fellowship and relationship because of this sin issue. Hope is an open ocean, jump in and you'll find 
Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know